So Nutrition Security looks at not only affordability of healthy foods, but also accessibility to really get people that are most in need the access to food that they need to promote a healthy lifestyle. When you're out shopping, it's easy to see how food prices are way up. It's easy to blame inflation, but it's only one of the many factors that contribute to food insecurity. I'm Melissa Harris, and today we're going to break down some of those factors. So on this episode of Empathy Effect, the Forest Marsh Media podcast that explores the human side of government, let's dive into food insecurity. Food and nutrition insecurity is detrimental to a person's health and can have devastating community impacts. Socioeconomic factors like household income, employment status, and geographic factors like where a person lives also play a role. Food insecurity is a big enough issue that the White House convened a conference on hunger, nutrition, and health in September 2022 and released a national strategy with the goal to end hunger and increase healthy eating and physical activity by 2030. There's a lot to unpack around the issue of food insecurity, so we're going to have a two-part discussion. First, the science, then the policy. In this episode, we'll talk about some of the medical impacts and health inequities that stem from nutrition insecurity. And in our next episode, we'll talk about the policy side at the public health level, diving into how federal agencies are providing services to combat nutrition insecurity and increasing awareness around diet. To tee up our conversation on the science side of things today is Dr. Allison Brown, Program Director of the Cardiovascular Sciences Program at the National Heart, Blood, and Lung Institute at the National Institutes of Health. All right, Dr. Brown, thank you so much for joining us. This is a wonderful opportunity to chat with you and learn about some of your work at the National Heart, Blood, and Lung Institute. Um, but before we get into the weeds around what you and other researchers in the diet and health equity space do, can we start by talking about the correlation between food insecurity, inequities, and diet-related diseases? Yeah, so food insecurity, it's defined by the USDA as not having enough access to a food consistently, and it's linked with a variety of diet-related diseases. So these include obesity, cardiovascular disease cardiovascular disease-related risk factors, so hypertension, as well as diabetes. And like I mentioned, it's the inability to acquire enough food to meet the needs to maintain an active lifestyle. And it really does interfere with the ability to access healthy food, which is critically important for the prevention and management of these noted diet-related diseases. I mean, research consistently shows an association between food insecurity, as well as lower overall diet quality overall outcome and signal of overall economic instability, which also comes with its host of other barriers to maintaining a healthy lifestyle. So where are diseases that stem from poor diet most prevalent in America and what kinds of populations are affected? We think of diet-related diseases, I mean, it's an issue all across the U.S., uh, but in the southern areas of the U.S., it's coined the stroke belt Um, In the Southeast region, uh, there are higher rates of heart disease as well as uh, hypertension and other diet-related diseases. So it's estimated that one in two adults have diabetes or prediabetes, and three in four adults are overweight or obese, and this is really across the board. You do see pockets in areas out West that have less prevalence of overweight and obesity, but generally it is an issue across the United States. 
Um, and unfortunately, you have certain populations that are disproportionately affected. So those who are low income, those in rural communities, as well as uh, those of racial and ethnic minority groups. So just to give an example, um, African-Americans are more likely to develop hypertension at an earlier age than their white counterparts. And their what's known as their systolic blood pressure is on average seven millimeters of mercury higher than their white counterparts. And then when you look at our Hispanic American populations, based on 2018 data, Hispanics were 70% more likely than their white counterparts to be diagnosed with diabetes, and then 1.3 times more likely uh, to die from the disease as well. So overall, you do see the, these disparities by racial and ethnic groups, and then those of lower income among racial and ethnic minority groups are also at higher risk. Throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, conditions that contribute to food insecurity have also been exacerbated. Between school closures, falling employment, food supply chain disruptions, and skyrocketing inflation. The Brookings Institution found in a June 2020 report that food insecurity increased to 16% of households with children, a more than five-fold increase from estimates in 2018. These recent trends just go to show again how food insecurity stems from so many factors, socioeconomically, environmentally, and so much more. So Dr. Brown, I understand that you have a big personal connection to the research you do. So can you share how you chose to go into nutrition and health equity and how your experiences seeing nutrition insecurity in your family has informed your work? Yeah, that's a great question, Melissa. Um, so my interest in nutrition and nutrition equity really stems from a lot of my family members struggling with diet-related diseases, so obesity, heart disease, stroke. I had a close uncle of mine that passed away tragically at the early age of 47, and just seeing the ripple effects of that on not only his family, uh, but those around him certainly broadened my interest in nutrition equity, but also uh, social determinants of health as well. Mm. I'm so sorry to hear about your uncle. It must have had an impact on your focus in your career. So how did you end up working in the field you're in? Yeah, like I said, it's those personal experiences. Um, I was initially, though, interested in medicine when I was an undergrad at Spelman College. But after college, I did an internship in the Gambia in West Africa through the Minority Health International Research Training Program. And in the Gambia, um, you know, really experiencing malnutrition on one end, you know, and severe undernutrition in the developing world, and then seeing on the other end of the spectrum issues of overnutrition here in the United States really shifted my interest from medicine to nutrition. Um, and being a Black woman in America and just seeing the disparities in access and differences in lifestyles really shaped my uh, interest and passion in the health disparities field. I'm sure witnessing these strategies has shaped your studies. From your time interning through all the positions you've held until now at NIH, as you've researched in the space and engaged with impacted individuals and communities over time, can you share how you've seen food insecurity impact different people? Prior to being at NHLBI and NIH, I worked at several community-based organizations um, in Boston and D.C., and often worked in communities of color in those respective areas. So what I often saw was issue not only with um, economic access and not having enough economic resources to get adequate foods, but also access 
to healthy foods at the neighborhood and community level. So seeing kind of disparities in uh, and inequities in what foods were available in what communities. So the USDA has termed this as food deserts, uh, but there's also an issue around food swamps, if you will, where you have certain communities that have an overabundance of unhealthy and more affordable foods uh, at the community and neighborhood level. So you, in urban environments, you see more corner stores. Um, so that really is a big driver into what people eat and why they eat. And it's not just economics and food availability. It's also what's happening in your community, societal factors, what's marketed to you, elements that we call social determinants of diet. Several factors play a role into the dietary choices that people make. So it's economics, but it's also availability um, in your community, but also time availability. So all of those factors really do play a role. And I like to consider it kind of the social determinants of diet. Um, so it's not just economics, but also what's available in the neighborhood, um, how your doctor or primary care provider is talking with you about nutrition and diet, if at all. And then your community and social environment stressors and how that plays a role into why you choose the foods that you eat. Also an advertisement and disproportionate advertisement of unhealthy foods to minority and minoritized communities also play a role. So there's kind of this perfect storm, if you will, unfortunately, for those who experience nutrition and diet related health disparities, because you have all these different factors that play a role and really contribute to poor diet in these communities. This perfect storm continues to impact certain groups of people in their own unique ways, too. Children, for instance, are some of the most vulnerable. The way you framed it really does show how it's truly a perfect storm or a web of conditions that play into food and nutrition insecurity. I do know that some people are more vulnerable, though, like children, for instance. Can you break down some of the health impacts that these conditions have for children and what diseases long-term that they may be most prone to? Yeah, so great question. And just want to start off, I didn't share this statistic earlier around food insecurity among households with children. Um, but in 2021, 12.5% of households with children experienced food insecurity. And about half of those food insecure households with children, uh, only the adults experience food insecurity. So you often find adults in a household trying to shield food insecurity issues from their children, but that's not always the case. And again, although they might shield their children from food insecurity issues, the nutrition quality of foods could also be compromised within the household. So food insecurity and poor diet quality overall can harm our children uh, by dooming future generations to suffering issues with disability or lost human potential because of being diagnosed with diet-related diseases earlier in the life course. So just to give you a statistic, among two to five-year-olds, one in 10 children are already obese. And then once they become teenagers, one in five are obese. And then in terms of prediabetes, one in five teenagers uh, are considered to have prediabetes. So these are really shocking statistics. So if you have a teenager who has prediabetes and it develops into diabetes, that can contribute to loss of productivity in the workplace, you know, other comorbid issues that are related to diet down the line. So it really does have a poor prognosis in terms of into the life course and adulthood. Um, but then also food insecurity has been shown to be linked with increases in student school absenteeism as well as poor school performance. So that can play a role into economic viability. If someone isn't doing well in school and have poor kind of school outcomes, then that in turn could contribute to lower life earnings down the line. 
it's really scary thinking about the long-term impacts on children. Um, but there are other vulnerable populations too, like the elderly or pregnant people. What about them? In terms of the elderly population, uh, food insecurity, as well as lack of access to food, can influence medication adherence because some medications require food to be taken. Then it could also lead to poor disease management and other health outcomes. And then for pregnancy, more research is really needed to explore the exact impact of food insecurity on pregnant pregnancy outcomes. So when a woman or a pregnant person experiences food insecurity during their pregnancy could potentially have differential impacts on the outcomes in pregnancy. Um, but then also, as you can imagine, nutrition and dietary intake overall and the quality of foods that can have an impact on the potential kind of nutrient delivery, if you will, to the growing fetus. So that could also play a role. Um, but overall, food insecurity among a variety of populations can have a significant long term health impact. So and contribute to the diet related diseases mentioned. So obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, hypertension and so forth. So we've spent a good amount of time here unpacking research and findings around food insecurity in America. While the information and science is important, there's still the matter of taking what we know and helping those in need. Dr. Brown points to the COVID-19 pandemic as a moment for change in the way we connect research to the public health level. So one key learning from the COVID-19 epidemic and kind of programs that have ensued since then is the Community Engaged Alliance or the SEAL program here within NIH. And it's primarily led by the National Institute on Minority Health and Health Disparities, as well as the National Heart, Lung and Blood Institute. And the goal is to make improvements to connect research to the people that are most impacted to ultimately advance public health. Um, and it was originally developed with the mission to provide trustworthy science-based information through active community engagement, as well as outreach to the people hardest hit by the COVID-19 pandemic. And it's created this network of researchers and community organizations across the country that's also being leveraged to advance public health in general. Um, so that's one way in terms of leveraging the SEAL network uh, that the NHLBI and NIH as a whole is trying to help connect the research to uh, public health. And we also have a variety of evidence-based resources on NHLBI's website that could also help to educate the public um, and try to advance public health overall. So a lot of the way we can move forward is to engage partners. How can different partners who, in your case, may be research organizations or community-based organizations or other academics or industry help support this mission going forward? Yeah, that, it's a good question. Um, you know, the the SEAL network and kind of the, the mission to provide trustworthy and trustful information really serves as a model of what other partners can do. Um, and as mentioned in the Saunders-Watkins uh, workshop, really the importance is of uh, building authentic community partnerships with organizations. Um, and this is also based on what's known as the asset-based model. Uh, communities that are experiencing health disparities day in and day out, they often have their own solutions to problems. So it's really important for the research community to authentically engage and partner with these community organizations. Um, so along those same lines is the element of transparency and processes. So historically, marginalized communities have been left out of conversations. So to overcome this distrust and that barrier of distrust, it's really key to be transparent and open about what's going on in terms of the research in their community, and then really opening the door to how communities can be involved. 
again, this takes authenticity in these relationships to really uh, foster these relationships over time to have community organizations integrated into uh, the research process. As Dr. Brown mentions, trust is incredibly important in bridging the science and our actual well-being. For certain segments of the U.S. population, like racial and ethnic minorities, hesitancy and lack of trust in the government has historical roots. For example, the mistrust created by the Tuskegee syphilis study that ran from 1932 to 1972. Even today, there are issues with discriminatory practices in our healthcare system through practitioner and patient interactions. Brown and her colleagues at NIH have recognized this and are trying to bridge gaps between trust, research, and public health. And we certainly recognize that at NHLBI and have these ongoing active conversations about the issue with a variety of stakeholders. So in December of last year, NHLBI held our annual Watkins Saunders workshop, and the focus of it is building trust in community-engaged research. Um, And the workshop discussed the importance of truthfulness and transparency and trustworthiness in the biomedical research enterprise and identified gaps to establish trusted partnerships with community-based organizations to really promote community-engaged research. And it brought together a variety of different stakeholders, so not just researchers, but also healthcare providers, community partners, uh, federal, state, and local government officials, as well as other stakeholders to really discuss the state of the science in the area to ultimately build trust in community-engaged research to tackle these health inequities. Strides like this have helped NHLBI lead studies that help us better understand communities typically underrepresented in medical research. As researchers have built trust and diversity in their studies, new findings have emerged to help us figure out intersections like how different minimum wages impact health. Studies like these help medical and public health experts better understand how improving programs like the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program and Women, Infants, and Children's Programs, otherwise known as SNAP and WIC, can help improve nutrition security and well-being. One study that comes to mind is the NHLBI wages study, and that's comparing basically two cities in the United States that one city had an increase in minimum wage and another city had an ordinance actually to stop increases in minimum wage. And uh, Dr. Caitlin Caspi is the investigator out of Yale uh, looking at the health impacts of the differences in minimum wage in these two different uh, respective cities and the health impacts not only on obesity, but also on uh, food insecurity rates as well. And we have several of our NHLBI cohort studies um, funded by NHLBI that look at associations between diet and diet quality and different health outcomes specific to NHLBI's mission. So all of these kind of play a role into informing the importance of diet quality in shaping health. Uh, So thinking about SNAP, potential SNAP regulation to improve nutrition security. So nutrition security looks at um, not only affordability of healthy foods, but also accessibility. And there are conversations on potentially, you know, revisions or kind of SNAP um, revisions to allow only healthy food purchases among SNAP. So a lot of our work that we fund at NHLBI can certainly help inform that Speaking of SNAP and WIC, 
These nutrition assistance programs are just a couple of the many services that the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Food and Nutrition Services run. While we've spent today learning about the research and background of food insecurity, in part two, we're going to have an enlightening conversation with FNS's first director of nutrition security and health equity. Next time, we'll break down how FNS is examining both existing and new challenges with food insecurity and how resources, education, and other strategies can help improve our nutritional security and well-being. While we release monthly, part two comes out on December 15th. Follow us on the podcast platform of your choice or at forestmarsh.com. Thanks, y'all. Empathy Effect is a product of Forest Marsh. You can reach us at Media at forestmarsh.com with any feedback, questions, or inquiries.